What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the I Was Dead podcast. In this episode, we had David Poirier. Poirier? Did I pronounce it wrong? I'm sorry. Je m'appelle Jason. <laughs> I know a little bit of French, but it's been a while. It's been like five years. But anywho, in this episode, we dove into building secure apps and cybersecurity in iOS and iPhone and the Apple ecosystem. And I have a little um, a little story to, to tell you guys. A little, I, a little bit embarrassing, but... It, it's um it's all right and it was a good um it's good to learn and um shout out to Dave for coming on and one last thing uh if any guys are aspiring iOS developers I I do have two slots open for the break into iOS program the enrollment just opened I believe by the time this come out it'll open but the doors close in like a week or so so if you're interested uh, the link will be down below apply and uh, hope you enjoyed this episode have a good day peace. So let's get into it. Uh, thank you again for coming on the show. Welcome. Um, I want to start this episode different, not too different, but slightly different. Um, because so I recently got my open AI key compromised and someone, <laughs> someone, someone had fun with it. Thankfully they didn't take that much or they didn't use it that much. I had like a limit at like a hundred or something. And, and yeah, so that was something I was dealing with and it was partially my fault. I wasn't using like best practices usually the case yeah so what are some uh some security must-haves for an application that's going to be on the app store what would you say well um got a nice article on that in my blog uh, but uh, essentially uh, it boils down to uh, making sure that all of the private information that you have whether it's your api keys or uh, license for some framework that you're using inside of the app um, server communicate where you're supposed to your endpoint address where you're supposed to be to to, to hit your um, encryption keys uh, everything should be as safe as you can possibly make it and uh, you should avoid uh, storing the storing any of that information on the hard drive as is um, you, when you follow a lot of tutorials like Google integration and all that. By default, they tell you like put your put your API keys directly in the info that P list and you're done. Uh, it makes it very easy for you, but it also makes it very easy for the hacker to find out your keys because they're straight the info the P list. It's unencrypted. They, anybody downloading your app can have access to that in a matter of seconds. Um, so my first thing is try to not use info the P list. Find an alternative way. Most of the frameworks have a way to pass in the, your own configuration uh, at startup in application did finish launching. So I'd say keep your information inside of the app, not in the info the P list. Um, try to obfuscate it if you can uh, or encrypt it and uh, use the configuration builds. That's the first one. Um, use TLS pinning if you can. Uh, if, you, if you communicate to a server or something like that, TLS pinning is an easy one. Um, the one thing to remember with TLS pinning, I keep telling to everyone that makes TLS pinning tutorials or guides, remember to build in a, an update mechanism. Your server keys will or certificates will eventually expire or you may have to revoke it if a hacker acts your server. Um, but you, you, you don't necessarily want to force your users to do a, an, up, uh, an update of your software and you may not it would be very bad timing if you try to submit an update to the App Store and Apple rejects it just after your key got compromised. So you're at the mercy of the Apple review process. And when that happens, that may mean like hours, sometimes days before you get another app in the end of your user. So you really need to have an, uh, 
TLS spinning uh, update mechanism built in directly inside of your app, whether it's a, via another domain name that you own or some third-party services like uh, Firebase Remote Config, LaunchDarkly, something. Um, something that we are, a lot of developers forget as well is the leave a print statement or lots of logging about what's actually going wrong with the app. So as the hacker try to use your app and figure out what's happening, you give him little tips in a console. <laughs> this is not working. This is not working. Uh, so you should strip all of that information that is useful for you as a debugger, as a developer. Strip all that out before putting it in the app store so that the, the hacker, when they get your app, they don't see anything in the console. They can't figure out what's actually going on. All they know is the app is crashing or not working in their hacked environment or their compromised environment. Um, and one of the big ones that we learned a few years ago, um, don't trust third-party services, <laughs> uh, not, not blindly at the very least. Uh, like if you include the third-party framework or an open source license inside yeah. of your app, um, verify that it's actually legit. And if you use a specific version, pin that version down in your, in your Git repository uh, or your pod, uh, CocoaPods or SwiftPM, just pin the ash, the actual commit ash of that, of that version. Uh, so if, if the developer decides to compromise a version or republish an existing version number, because you may not want to upgrade, maybe you may not want to upgrade, but the developer can still push a, a new version with the same version uh, number as before on their Git repo. And that would, you would still be using a new code even though you didn't change a version number. So always spin your, uh, to the commit ash. Um, so, I mean, there's more, there's a lot more out there to do, yeah. but these would be like my Damn, basic 101, like TLS spinning, your API keys, don't trust third-party libraries blindly, um, uh, secure your, your CI/CD pipeline. Yeah. Dang, because I was, yeah, there's a lot to go from, a lot of places to go, uh, go to from there. But one that I was going to hit on later is, um, so even like for Firebase, you have to use a plist to set it up. Excuse me. <laughs> is, is that not the way to go? like is is that wrong then or well is it wrong um i don't know the internals of firebase so i cannot speak in great details to me it sounds like bad practice in, up front but maybe they have some really clever engineers at google and i'm sure they do um, and they may be doing some key derivation based on your bundle id based on your own mobile provisioning profile. I don't know. Maybe they do some weird stuff with with this, and they derive some information at runtime based on the plist and your other information that is inside of your app. If that's the case, then great, no issues because they are like they don't give your API key straight off. Maybe they do, they do TLS pinning straight inside of Firebase. I hope they do. Um, yeah. The point is, I don't know the internals, so it's hard for me yeah. to comment on that. Yeah, I think they do. I think they definitely do something because I looked into it myself. Because I um I have some apps with Firebase in it, and I did like the security scan, and I got like um I guess what is it issues found or findings because of the uh the info the Google info .plus. Yeah. So I I looked up on Stack Overflow and a bunch of places, and they said that they they do some extra security stuff. I don't know the exact details, but they, they do something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they keep it a little private. And uh, I'm always afraid of security by, pri uh, like, uh, by, um, by keeping stuff private and, and like mm -hmm. by obscurity. Security by obscurity is something that should never be done. And that's exactly what's happening in Firebase. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it leaves me a little bit queasy. Yeah. Um, and when I see the number of people that get 
to disclose like, oh, my Firebase account has been compromised and stuff, it, it brings me really big concerns about using that service overall. But yeah. And um, you mentioned something obfuscation, right? Correct. Um, is there any places you would recommend to get started with that? Or is that something you could do on your own? Yeah, I, you can definitely do I it on your own. It. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you can, like just taking your, your, your stuff and uh, encrypting it with, like you generate yourself a key. You say, okay, my key for my code will be the bundle ID with the current version, with the, a, a string that I generate. Like you generate your UUID and that's your UUID plus your bundle ID that makes your encryption key. And then anything that you need to stay private inside of the app, you encrypt with AES 256 GCM. And then you use that key to derive, like you use that your bundle ID plus that UUID inside of your code mix it up at runtime, and that becomes your decryption key. So, I mean, it's not super secure. It, like, it can, it's mm -hmm. not like the next plus ultra yeah. of everything, but it's good enough that you will avoid all the script kitties. Like, like, all the script kitties are already out of the door. They won't be able to get access to your information. So that's already fairly good. Uh, there are some uh, libraries that shuffles your data around uh, to, to make it look obfuscated. My problem is that most of them are actually in Objective-C. And Objective-C is super easy for hackers to bypass and uh, get access to. They, they swizzle those functions away and they, they just replace them with their own or they snoop on what the response is. Um, so I would not recommend anything done in Objective-C for security. It should be completely avoided. Um, and if, it's, if it is in Swift, just be careful that it is not super popular as well, because just remember that if you're using a library that is super, super, super popular, hackers are also very, 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 very intent on breaking it. Um, so most likely they might already have a, they, they might have already figured it out how it works, how to decrypt it, and how to, to reverse engineer it, and they, are, they have a script ready to go. So sometime security by obscurity is slightly better especially when you want to obfuscate stuff inside of your your mm -hmm. but uh the best way to to go about it is just use something that is trusted and known aes 256 gcm rock solid trusted by the government trusted by everyone mm -hmm. it's probably your sure bet just aes 256 your your own stuff locally on your machine you take the encrypted value that it gives you that's what you put in your source code and mm -hmm. you decrypt it at runtime uh, and and if somebody wanted to implement that, I'm guessing there's resources online on how to do that. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, CryptoKit has a nice tutorials. There are tons of tutorials on CryptoKit and how, how to use it. Uh, they made it super convenient. You have a class called AES uh, AES two fifty six dot GCM that you can use. Um, so definitely easy to get going. And what about for the other um, things you mentioned, like the TS uh, TLS pinning and um, the other methods? What would like, do you have any recommended resources? Yeah, um, there's uh, application transport security that has um, some of the TLS spinning mechanism built in, uh, straight into into it. The problem is that it uses info.plist. Um, so you pin your TLS, so you, you provide your public key uh, directly inside of your info.plist and in the right places for the right uh, certificate name, uh, server names, and Apple will automatically do the, the TLS spinning for you. Um, you can also Create your own again on my blog, blog.encoded.life. Uh, there's a nice little tutorial on how to do TLS pinning uh, with uh, verifying that there's no TLS bypass possible. Um, and that's part of the uh, the issue with TLS pinning is that 
it's so easy to bypass. If you use Frida or uh, Radare or any of those tools as a hacker, uh, there's one command line you do like TLS bypass, enter. That's it. You're bypass, you bypass the TLS spinning that the developer did in like in 99% of the cases. Um, and the reason is if you just do, if you just verify that the certificate is coming in and you say yes or no, it's valid, which is what 99% of the tutorials there for TLS spinning are doing, um, you, they, they will bypass it. They just override the TLS library uh, endpoints and they say, yep, it's a valid certificate anyway. So you say, no, it's not valid. And they, 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 they say, yes, it is. And that's it, you're done. It goes through, the communication goes through. So there's a way to bypass that in binary. You verify that your code was actually called and you record whether or not that success, that was successful or not. So even if they say, yes, it's allowed, you're still, the, the, the communication is still gonna go with the server. But when you get the reply from the server, you're like, wait a minute, I got a reply from the server, but did it really go through my code and was it really valid? Uh, so you do that extra, extra step at the end and then that, and that makes sure that this bypass TLS command that is available in Frida and Radari um, doesn't work. And is, is TLS the same as SLS pinning or is that? Uh, actually, SS, uh, SSH or T, uh, HTTPS um, are just our protocols that are using TLS under the hood. Uh, and TLS has its own set of protocols and then encryption. It does like public private key exchange directly in the channel and whatnot. But uh, it, they're not interchangeable, but they're often interchanged by the community. Mm -hmm. ah. And how, how do you weigh like the trade-offs then when you're like, if you're building an app or if you're talking to someone who's building an app? Because uh, some of these stuff like require like some time and like, um, yeah, basically some time and maybe they want to just build and ship. So how do you um, weigh that? I first, it depends on, on what your application is doing. I mean, if all your app is doing is having a grocery list, probably don't spend three <laughs> months on security. Might be worth it, but probably not. Uh, but if your app is like having jogging routes, then uh, it may not sound like a lot, but it uh, it's the physical security of people. It can be compromised. People can then figure out where the, that politician that is using your app for their jogging, jogging route will be. And we've seen that in the news. Um, or if you are a travel app and like you can record your next travel location. Uh, again, if a politician or someone important, their location is leaked about where they will be at what date, it starts to be seriously risky for people to do that or journalists that are getting targeted by governments or foreign, foreign agencies, spies, stuff like that. Like you really have to, to think wide here. Sometimes you make a small app that you think is going to be fun and then you end up, it end up being popular and then you don't know who's going to use it. Uh, so in those cases, then spending some time in security may really be worth it. Every time it involves locations or personal information, you really have to start thinking about spending some serious time thinking about security, doing a full threat assessment. Um, this is something that every app should do is a threat assessment because that's what's going to determine the, the level of effort that you're going to have to spend inside of the app. Um, so in a threat assessment, one of the things that you do is you first document all, what kind of information do you have? And then you do the mental exercise of what are what is the worst case possible scenario that could happen if someone got hold of that information. And then you you like okay, and then you do okay. What's the likeliness of that happening? And 
how easy is, is, is it to fix? Because sometimes may, something may be very unlikely to happen, but the risk would be very grave if it did. But then it's like a five minute fix. And that's where most people stop is like evaluating how much effort is actually involved. And I've seen that in corporate world all the time. You, you tell them like, look, this could happen. And they're like, yeah, but it's very unlikely to happen. Uh, and then you're like, yeah, but you, do you realize that it's like five minutes or 20 minutes or like an hour and then it's just QA? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but we accept the risk. Like, <laughs> it would be an hour of our time. And then you could just get rid of that risk entirely, uh, even though it's unlikely. But in the corporate world, that, that kind of mentality is very common. And I've seen that um, times and times again. And it's just inside of your threat assessment, always evaluate not only the risk and the likeliness, just also evaluate how much effort is actually required to fix it. Like TLS pinning, most developers that know how to do it, 30 minutes is done. So super low bar, low hanging fruit, just go for it. Yeah. And um, a question from that is like, so if a hacker wanted access to something in your app, is there... Let is, me put an asterisk right here. I'm going to stop yeah. you. Yeah. If a hacker is knowledgeable enough... There is no amount of effort that you can do yeah, that, to prevent that. <laughs> <laughs> you can only put barriers and obfuscations and try to confuse them like as best as you can. You can try to detect if there's a debugger in place. You can try to, but if the hacker is knowledgeable enough, they will break your app, guaranteed. So it's just raising the bar high enough so that the amount of effort that they have to put into it isn't worth it. Um, like I, I keep talking about script kitties and to me, my, the perfect example are like some of my, uh, families and friends, they, they were like 15 years old, 14 years old. They just learned about hacking and how, like they, they found that website that has a tool that they can download on their PC. It's called Frida or Radare. They just download that tool or mobile SF. They, they download that tool on their app. They, they download an app from the app store and they, they drag that app onto that new tool that they have. And they're like, Ooh. I got access to the strings files. Look at all those passwords. Yay. I mean, they don't need a lot of knowledge to do that. The tools are easily downloadable. There's instru guided instructions on how to install it and how, how to hack. I mean, it takes anyone about an hour or two hours to figure it out on the first try. That's the hackers that you want to block because these are like low-level develop act it's super easy to access for anyone any and, and you want to block against that a jealous husband <laughs> a, a, a next friend uh, like yeah. it doesn't matter but these are the ones you want to block because they're easy to block if you're talking about state actors like russian government trying to get into ukrainian phones I mean, these guys are going to go to extreme lengths, sometimes spending months on a single app just because they know that this politician is probably using Twitter. Um, there's nothing that we can do for that. Um, it doesn't mean that we, sh we should just abort and do nothing. Mm. Quite the reverse. We should try to do as much as we can within the affordability that we can. But if they really want to, they will break your app. They will put breakpoints. Like you try to detect if there's a debugger. So in your code, you have a bit of a little bit of code that checks if the debugger is running. And then they're going to find it. They're going to replace that bit of code with one of their own. And they're going to bypass it. So now you can no longer detect if there's a debugger running. And now you're going to try to verify how long it took to get from point A to point B. 
and you're going to crash the app if it takes longer than, than, than this amount of time because most likely they're bypassing your debugger check, but they're still in the debugger. Well, they're going to find that and then they're going to remove that if check. And then so they can replace everything in memory. If the, if the CPU of the phone can execute it, an hacker can execute it in their own debugger. Now, it's just a matter of time. How long are they going to have to spend to find all those checks that you have in your app? How many of them you've spread out throughout your app, if it's obvious or not? So sometimes the best way is to not crash your app, is to not prevent the app from running. It's to confuse the hacker a little bit. For example, you return false API responses. So you're, when you make a call to your API backend, you still make the call but you set a flag to a certain value that is slightly different. It doesn't look that different to the hacker, but you detected that they're running through a debugger, you change that flag, and then you send that flag along with your API response to the server. And the server receives that, sees that flag, and you're like, oh, this is running from a compromised device. It still sends an API response back, but modified. So instead of sending all the travel locations of the, of the person that's actually using the, the account, it now sends a random data set of travel locations in Florida. <laughs> yeah. So the hackers thinks that they got the data from the user, but they got some random data that doesn't match at all. And the, the user will know that this is not their travel location. They'll be like, okay, something is going on. My device may be compromised. I'm getting data that is not mine. Yeah. So sometimes it's, it's better to just detect, but not prevent so that the hacker doesn't know that they have to replace this stuff in memory. They still get data back, but it's not the right data. Uh, so sometimes the best approach is just doing it server side and just have the detection on the client side and just send some of the data, data along. And the hacker may not even notice that that variable is being passed in the, uh, in the query. Yeah. Wait, so given all of this stuff, um, how is a uh, civilization still standing, right? Because given <laughs> that hackers can just get, in, get into anything. Well, I think civilization is still standing because... <laughs> Not everyone is ready to put the amount of effort to do that. And you have to remember that the best secrets are the kept secrets. So it is better, for example, for, a, let's say China decides to hack into a U.S. phone of a politician in the U.S. What's better for them to snoop on the conversations for months and years without telling anyone and just passing the info silently under the hood to their government or blatantly saying, hey, I got your info. Obviously, they'll try to stay silent about it and try to snoop in for as long as possible without being detected. Um, so when that happens, um, they are going to try to use the information without telling you where they get the information from. Yeah. Um, so they, they have to be careful about how they use it. Uh, if, for otherwise, you're just going to figure it out very, very quickly. Uh... Yeah. So a lot of that information is just spying on people, uh, getting access to information you should not have. Um, and this is how the world is standing. France mm -hmm. knows about mm -hmm. what the Germans are doing and the, the UK knows about what the US is doing. The US knows about what everyone in the world is doing. Um, and just that's how it works. I mean, they, they collect information and they use it for their own purposes. Uh, but they, they don't necessarily like decide to blow up your phone remotely or blow up your house or attack you in the streets. I mean, if they did that for everyone, then it would, it, the, like you said, the world would not exist. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's crazy. Oof. And yeah, it makes sense that they keep it uh, like secret. 
as much as possible. I mean, even if hacker compromise your device, their best guess is to compromise the device for as long as possible. Uh, if they just put a, like a, a, a skull and bone, like a skull and bones on top of your phone when you're using it, you know you've been compromised, so you will stop using your phone. It's not helping them. But if they, if they get access to your phone and they're able to snoop onto your, on, the, on your messages and your social networks and everything you're doing on your phone for months, that's yeah. much better. So they're going to try to stay silent and undetected for as long as they can. Damn. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure the listeners are a little concerned. <laughs> well, not, maybe, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Um, so what steps can the people take? I guess just be careful what you have online. Well. Glad you asked. I work for a company called iVerify and I just joined them recently. And uh, one of the first things you can do is download their app straight from the app store. Um, iVerify, they do a threat assessment uh, on your phone directly. So it's an app that runs locally. You can install it onto your own screen. So it runs 100% of the time. And it verifies if your phone has been compromised, checks for traces of existing uh, attacks or sometimes unknown attacks as well. It's able to like, look at the list of processes that is running on your phone. It's able to look at the files that, like, see if there's a CDS store or if any of the, the files have been modified or the permissions still, like the sandbox permission, have they been broken? Am I, or is the app able to get outside of the jail? And if it's able to get outside of the jail, eh, chances are the phone is jailbroken. Um, so it, it has a lot of built-in mechanisms like that, which I can't reveal exactly how they work. Yeah. Uh, but you can install the app. It's, I think it's three bucks. It's super cheap. And then you, you got little check purchase? marks on your home screen. It's called uh, iVerify. Yeah. It's a one-time purchase? Or yeah, is it's it a one-time purchase. Yeah. And then you will get push notification as soon as Apple has a new version, like a, with a security fix or something like that. You get a push notification right away saying, hey, update right now. Because sometimes Apple will delay the update notifications like for like a day and a half, sometimes sometime hours, but sometimes multiple days or a week later, depending on, on your update schedule and there's the, the, uh, the security risk. But when you have that app installed, right away, you get a push notification saying new version released. So you can install it right away. And they also have a built-in guides on how to lock down your device even more, like how to disable Bluetooth, how to enable lockdown mode, uh, like all the different things that you can do to improve security. Yeah. So highly recommended. Uh, that's the first step I would do. If I want to secure my phone and yeah. want to make sure that I'm safe, first thing I do, install yeah. iVerify. All right. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So yeah, the listeners can do that or they can just move into the woods. And then, and well, then nobody... of course, if you disable <laughs> yeah. your Bluetooth, you disable your Wi-Fi, and you disable the cellular data, and then you use it only as an SMS message platform, yeah, that will work. You'll be uh, much safer. All right, wait, so uh, now a little bit by yourself. So how did you get into cybersecurity? And... Uh, just curiosity by myself over the years, I mean... I've, I've been a bit of a hacker myself. Like back in the days, I had the built-in board system, BBS, and a friend of mine were like giving diskettes with like stolen software. Oh, you can install like 3D software for free. Just here's the floppy. Um, and I was curious, like what's actually preventing? How can you prevent that from happening? Um, so right away, like I started getting queries curious about like software licenses, uh, validation. Uh, and then throughout my investigation, I learned about encryption and um, obfuscation and all that. Um, 
eventually I got curious about operating systems. How, how can the operating system help or can be bypassed? How can you take control of the PC and all of that? So I started working in operating system development. Um, and just curiosity, one thing led to another. Uh, you start studying about the public, like you start, install, you start installing GPG. Yeah. Uh, for public-private key pri privacy on your own computer in emails. And then you're like, okay, GPG is cool, but how does it work under the hood? And then you so yeah. suddenly go into a rabbit hole of learning about public-private key generation, DSA algorithms, RSA algorithms, um, and key, key sizes. Is 124 bits enough or do you need like 2048 bits or like how many bits do you need for your security, for your keys to be safe? And then you start learning about the quantum computers that are that can break uh, regular that can potentially break crypto regular crypto. Um, 2030, 2035 is when they expect quantum computers nice. to be strong enough to break all the current yeah. crypto. So there's a big race to go to like uh, crystal kyber uh, algorithms. Uh, but it, yeah, it's a lot of fun and you, it's a rabbit hole. Once you open that box, yeah. that Pandora box, and you start learning about one thing, it leads you to another that leads you to another. And this was all like on your own, just like learning like on online well, resources and stuff? Or not did you go to school? 100%. I mean, I did have a few training courses and a website that I got, like a security compass back in the day was allowing uh, individual to buy uh, training materials. Nowadays, they just have contract with companies, but uh, that's one of the companies. I think there's security.pl, if I'm not mistaken. I would have to look it up, but uh, that offers security courses now that you can buy. It's around a thousand bucks US and gives you uh, full access to all the training content and certification at the end. Um, there's tons of websites. I mean, if you start searching uh, security blogs, uh, like on Google, you're going to find tons of security stuff. Uh, you can go on my blog. You start start there, blog uh, blog.encoded.life. Go there and check it out. Uh, tons of articles there as well. And there's plenty of people on LinkedIn as well that, that like to share their information. So. Uh, and but um, because now you focus like on app security, right? Uh, or... True. Nowadays, I focus yeah. mostly on app security because it's my domain. It's what I write. I write mobile apps and desktop apps. So, of course, I'm going to focus on app security. Um, but app security also... Understanding app security also requires you to understand network security a little bit. For example, knowing that you need HTTPS. Um, and uh, so uh, knowing a little bit about network security is not a bad thing. So it's pretty good. and. If you're a software developer overall, knowing about server security is also very important. For example, how to do SQL injection, how to prevent that, and basic knowledge. Yeah. And what, what, what caused the shift, or when did that shift happen into like iOS? Um, I started doing macOS and iOS in 2010. Um, weirdly enough, I've been programming for Oh, wow. Since 1994, I think, is the first time I, I touched a, com uh, a compiler uh, till now. But it wasn't until 2010 that I worked full-time as a software developer, like, permanent. Um, and one of my friends was working at a company called, back in the day, it was called Freshcode. Uh, now, to, today, it's known as ID Fusion Software. And they were working in an app called Bodega. It was an app store for the app store before the app store existed. Um, so it was a, so you installed Bodega and you would be able to search all the software available for Mac and buy them and uh, install them. Mm. Um, and they needed help. And he, my friend, uh, Richard Fillion reached out to me. He's like, Dave, Dave, um, 
you're one of the best programmers that I know. Why are you not programming full time? And we need someone. I'm like, all right, I don't know. <laughs> I like, I like, like I was doing electronics and networks and building towers for radio communication and satellites and all that. I had fun, but he, so I was like, why not? But you, I've never touched a Mac except for playing a game like back in 1983. So I'm like, I, I don't know that environment. He's like, don't worry, you're going to learn. So in 2010, I started programming uh, for Mac OS on the Bodega app, um, worked full time for them. And uh, a few months later, we started doing the iOS app for contract work. Uh, well, actually, they, the other team were do already doing that, but I wasn't. And then a few months after, I picked that up and been doing iOS and Mac OS app since. Uh, how did you find that first experience? Because it was Objective-C, right? Yeah, 100% Objective-C back in the days. Um, for me, it was... Like, like everyone says, um, the Objective-C syntax is a little bit weird at the beginning, but you get used to it very quickly and then it's just normal. Um, I had over 15 years of C experience under the hood. So when I picked up Objective-C for me, it was like, ah, fine, brackets to send a message, done. And was that... Um... Were you learning about cybersecurity at the same time, or when did when did you start learning about cybersecurity? Oh, cyber! Like that? I said, cybersecurity. I got uh, my dip in, into it like back in the nineties uh, with the floppy disk and my friends sending stuff yeah. over. That's when I started getting curious about cybersecurity. Um, so it's not it's not from oh, yeah, that yeah, time. Yeah. It's yeah. throughout my life. So, you, so before then, you you already knew. Yeah. Well, I mean. The first time that you install Windows, it asks you for your license keys. Like you install Windows yeah. 95 from Fluffy, from Fluffy Disk or Windows 3.1, it asks you for your license key. Well, oh. <laughs> how does it work? And then you go on the website, there's a license key generator. You're like, woohoo, I don't have to pay for my license anymore. So you download the license generator and boom, you got your license key. So right away, I got curious about how does that work? How can they, why changing one letter in my license key makes it invalid? Like, there must be a logic behind that. So what's the algorithm and how does that work and how does the license gener key generator works? So I, I started from there. Um, so. Oh. And um, over the years, what, um, what changes in like evolution have you seen in like cybersecurity? We can do like app development first and then maybe you can go general. Um, a lot more um, respect for data privacy is uh, the, the evolution that I've seen. Uh, understanding what is PII, uh, personal, uh, personally identifiable information. For example, IP address is now considered PII. It wasn't back in the day. Um, an email address back in 93, who cared if an email address got leaked? Um, but today it's a big deal. Like your list of, of email addresses are like one of the more, the highest uh, information. Well, not that the highest, but I mean, it's, it's one of the first thing that companies will usually protect. Um, so I, I've seen a lot of progress in understanding what is PII and what is the impact of that information leaking out. The laws with GDPR improving and all that. Um, so I think data privacy is where cybersecurity evolved the most in the last 10, 15 years. Um, encryption algorithm, not so much. I mean, encryption has been solid for years. Um, you look at the AES encryption, for example, and it's like, I don't know how old it is, but it is almost older than me. Um, so you look at all these encryption algorithms, public-private key pairs and the public key cryptography, all of those things existed for the, like more than 10 years, 15 years. 
I just look at the HTTP, for example, with HTTPS. I mean, it's been in production for forever. I mean, we, we've improved version 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 of TLS, but it's still like the basic of public-private key exchange on, on the wild. Like you have an open network, I'm sending you my public key, you're sending your public key, and we establish a secret and we're like, we go from there. Um, I mean, those algorithms are pretty much the same. So not a lot of advancement in cryptography, but a lot more in understanding what needs to be protected. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And um, and what about in the iOS space? Has any, as much, well, I guess Apple has gotten, like, they've gotten more into, like, the private, I mean, the data security, like you said. I think the, the, the biggest advancement is what the platform uh, platforms themselves are doing, like Apple is doing with the ecosystem and Google is doing with the ecosystem. Um, they are putting more checks for the apps to make sure that the apps can't access the entire device. They are verifying that you do like the sandbox uh, or uh, the keychain and all the, the secure enclave, going from just the keychain itself to now having directly in hardware with a secure enclave. Uh, all those improvements directly done by the, the different platforms, I think is where it's evolved the most. Um, and we can see that now, for example, you can create a private key stored directly in the hardware inside of your secure enclave. It's no longer possible for a hacker to get access to your private key. Um, not all app developers are using the secure enclave. A lot of them are just using the keychain, and that's it. Then it's good wait, enough. Wait, what was that? What was that again? Can you say that? The secure enclave. Oh, oh uh, that's something new by Apple. I, I, I'm not even yeah, aware. Yeah, well, uh, I think it was introduced in Bionic A10 or A12 or something like that. A few years, like uh, nowadays, most like all of their devices support it. Uh, it's uh, directly inside of this uh, on, on the security chip directly of the, of their device. Uh, they have a little chip that is called a secure enclave, and um, it, it generates like when you you can ask the secure enclave to generate a public private key pair. It keeps the private key directly on the silicone. It never leaves the silicone. And then it gives you your public key. So when you want to do public-private key cryptography, you can send the public key to the remote server. You get your, your, the public key of the server back and you ask the chip, here's the public key from the server. Using the public key from the server and the private key from the chip itself, can you please give me my encryption key that you derive from ECDH? And the secure enclave will just say, here's your key. But it never gives you access to the private key itself. It keeps it on silicon, directly mm -hmm. on the hardware. So it's impossible for a hacker that wants to get access to your, to your key to extract it and use it on their side. It's stored straight in, in silicon. And as long as you use the secure enclave to generate your key pairs, you're safe to go. Like, there's no worries. Even if your keychain gets compromised, it's fine. Your private key is still inside of the silicon. Mm -hmm. So they need to get physical access to the device and be able to unlock it. Because if they need to do a reset, then silicon bye bye those private keys are gone oh, then. <laughs> so uh, i mean this is the biggest advancements we've seen in security uh, i think it's from directly from the platform vendor uh, google has so has something similar now where they can they have a hardware um key store for private keys i'm not sure i'm fairly confident it's not available in all of the android phones yet <laughs> but some of the android phones do so wow that's great to know i, I wasn't even aware of that and no. as long as you import CryptoKit, you're going to have access to uh, a class called Secure Enclave. So you do Secure Enclave dot, and then you can figure out all the functions from there. Oh. Plenty of WWDC tutorials on it as well. Cool, cool. And, and for the future, you said that the future of cybersecurity is mostly the race. Um, 
by like 2024 of um yeah the the, the quantum computers I mean. quantum computers are yeah. going to change a lot of things because in theory and again theory uh, a quantum computer is able to no longer works in just zeros and ones it's able to to be in multiple state at once that's what quantum computers do they they they're just like and in one single snoop they they test like millions of combinations just in in one attempt um so they're because they're all in all those different states at once and then you just get what the, the the one state that works out of the machine so you're able to try like millions of combinations in just one operation um so it allows you to break uh easy to break cryptography very 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 easily in one single step right now computers have to attempt every single permutations one by one even until they find the right one but the quantum computer is just like one operation and you get the key out um the only thing pre the preventing this from happening right now is the quantum computers are not big enough. They don't have enough qubits to be able to break large uh, cryptographic algorithms in one shot. They need a lot more qubits. But as the quantum computers are expected to grow in size and capability, it's expected that eventually we're just going to tell them, here's the cryptographic message. Figure, figure out how it was the key. And the, they're just going to give that, boop, and the answer is going to come out on the other side. Uh, what can you do? So there's new uh, quantum safe or post-quantum cryptography that the algorithms that have been defined that are supposed to use like multiple um, um, dimensions. Um, so they, they figure out like one dimension is a point this way, two dimensions is a point this way or that way, and three dimensions, four dimensions. These guys go like 195 dimensions. <laughs> And they put a point in 195 dimension space and that gives you a vector and that's your encryption vector. And when you combine that vector with another vector, that's your your um, your shared key. So, I mean, it's impo almost impossible for any computer to figure out in 195 dimensions what's the right vector to encrypt your data. Uh, so that's what Crystal Cyber does. Um, it, it's It's completely insane, but it still works and supposed to be crypto safe. Uh, so we just have to adopt it. Apple hasn't yet made that algorithm available um, to us, but there are libraries that exist for Go, uh, JavaScript, uh, C, and a bunch of different languages and platforms. Oh, so the, the, that, in, that encryption uh, algorithm is already made? Yeah, the, the, there, there was competitions a few years ago and, uh, where they challenged a lot of big companies like IBM, Microsoft, Google to come up with algorithms. Uh, that would be crypto safe and uh it it went through evaluation and they, 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 they checked a bunch of them and they picked a few uh key uh algorithms that were judged to be crypto safe uh quantum safe oh. wait and, uh, was there a company who won that <laughs> um or... i think it was ibm with the partnership with crystals uh that created uh the the uh, the winning uh, one of the winning algorithms. I'm not entirely sure. I don't have the information in front of me, but yeah, I think that's what it is. Oh. Well, thank you again for coming on. We're almost uh, wrapping up. I want to go back to the first thing, which I feel like is uh, like the first thing we hit on, which I feel like is important for like early and young developers. Yeah, who are like for example, who are communicating with API. So your best advice is to put that API key in a server, right? Or if somewhere is secure. Well, protect your API keys. Don't store it in the app if you can avoid it. 
yeah. if you can store it directly in the server, it's better. Um, but if you have to store the, the license key for your framework directly inside of your app because it needs to work offline, well, you have no choice. You have to store it in the app. Uh, so don't store it in the file. Don't store it into the info, the plist. Keep it obfuscated directly in your source code and not as a string if you can <laughs> because strings dumps, string dumps are super easy to do. Um, few other points that we really haven't touched on, but for example, things that you can do, um, have secure text fields, have a privacy cover inside of your app so that when your app goes to background, there's a like, little view, view that covers the, the content. So when iOS take the screenshot of the app, your content is not leaked. Um, don't use Objective-C. We mentioned that a little bit. Uh, avoid getting information at all from the server. Like for example, if you just need a list of dogs and cats from a server, uh, don't download the breed information. Don't download the pictures. Don't download anything that you don't need. I mean, if if, if I need to know, for example, uh, who are the family members, I don't need their age. I just need the name. Give me the list of names. I get the list of family members. Thank you very much. I don't need to know the relationship. I don't need to, need to know who's married to whom. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So go work with your server team to minimize the amount of information that you're transmitting to the iOS app. Send only the minimum required. Uh, same thing when you're storing information locally in the app. Don't store information that you don't need. Uh, even if you got an API response that contains a lot of information, if you don't need it, don't store it. Store the minimum amount of information locally in your files. Um, do input sanitation. If, you, if the users or the API can send data, validate it. Validate that the data is actually valid. For example, if you're supposed to receive the age of someone and you receive that as an int in your JSON, an integer can be a lot larger than 100 years. Most people will not live past 150 or 200 years old, right? So yeah. <laughs> an int larger than that amount is probably not a valid response. Um, so you should validate the data that you get to the maximum extent that you can. If you're supposed to receive an email, a string that is longer than 500 character is probably not an email anymore. Uh, so, but when you, when, you, when you go in JSON and you say, I'm expecting a string, there is no limitation to the size of that string. It can be a book. Uh, so you have to be, like, you have to, 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 to go a little, a little bit past the basic strings and the basic ints, define your own data types, define what are actually the valid criteria for each of your data types. So uh, data validation, user input sanitation, um, do a threat assessment. We mentioned that early on. Mm. All parts of things that all developers should do nowadays. All right. So that's... You gave me and a lot of, uh, I'm hoping a lot of other people, like things to research and uh, work on. Correct. Um, something that we haven't really touched on uh, that should also be considered is proper error handling. Um, quite a lot of developers don't do error handling the proper way. Like they don't validate what's actually, like I'm writing a file. What happens? The file can't be written. Ah, just put a question mark on. Try question mark. It's going to fail. Big deal. Um, <laughs> But you should verify whether or not things work or don't. Um, and you should handle the error appropriately, just ignoring errors or saying a print statement on the console, oh, file failed to save, uh, may not be good enough. Maybe you want to inform the user that their information wasn't saved. Uh, or maybe you want to deal with like just saying, you know what, if, I, if it doesn't work, error message, sorry. Can't write your file to disk, but at least the user is aware. So just proper data, error data handling, um, memory safety. Just do your do your due diligence as a programmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that's that's key to be honest. Because otherwise, your user just sits there and like 
they don't know what's happening. <laughs> they don't know. And then you probably don't know as well. Maybe you don't have the analytics coming back mm -hmm. to you. Uh, this is another thing that we've done, uh, that I've done throughout my years is um, track errors via analytics. Very often, the analytics will track what's happening in the UI, which button was pressed, what was done, but you don't necessarily have track of like what are the error, the uh, underlying errors that the app is actually receiving. So maybe tracking that by analytics is a good way of getting knowing before even the users created a support tickets. You see that you see errors starting to fill in, and you're in your like when you whenever they create a video recording, your analytics is sending errors. Maybe you can get ahead of the customer start working on a fix, publish it on the app store before even a customer complain about the video not working properly. Uh, so if you track your errors via analytics, uh, it can help a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I appreciate you for coming on the show. Um, where can people find you? Well, best place is on LinkedIn. I do have a Facebook account that I don't use. I do have a Twitter account that I don't use. Uh, so if you want to find me, it's on LinkedIn. Just search for Dave Poirier. Look, look for a face that looks like mine, and you should be able to find my profile. Yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a good... Uh, you guys should follow him on LinkedIn. He's really good. He Otherwise, shares a lot of good information. Uh, I, I already pointed it a few times, but there's my blog, blog.encoded.live, that I started very recently. So you yeah. can go in there and be able to find me. All right. Yeah, the links to the both of those will be in the description. All right. Awesome.